everybody, and welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off great works of literature by forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. In this week's episode, we are excited to talk about another new-to-us novelist, Han Suyin, born in either 1916 or 1917 to a Chinese father and Belgian mother, qualified as a doctor in London before moving to Hong Kong to practice medicine. One of her novels, you may have heard of, A Many Splendored Thing, was adapted into a film in 1955 starring William Holden and Jennifer Jones. I know the song, Amy, but I've never seen the movie. Love is a many splendored thing or something Ooh, like that. Yeah, love <laughs> is a many splendored thing. Now, I haven't seen that movie either, but do you know why we both know that song so well? There's a reason. I think it won an award, right? Is that no? There's a reason oh. everybody. Loves wow, how do we know it? Any splendid thing? Yeah, it's the very opening scene of Greece when Sandy and oh, Danny. Yeah. That's yes. exactly why we know it. Oh yes. my God, you're totally right. Of course, I can see it in my mind now. It's yes, it's so dramatic. <laughs> yeah. The sand and the water, exactly. It all comes back to the Greece musical for me. <laughs> Okay, but getting back to the other movie, A Many Splendor Thing, um, it was a successful film adaptation that enabled Suyin to quit medicine and focus on writing full time. And boy, did she. She went on to publish more than 30 books, including memoirs, biographies, volumes of cultural and political history, and novels, including the one we're going to be discussing today, Winter Love. Called her most vivid and best book, Winter Love is a Jewel of a Novella, and its unusual story of two female medical students who fall passionately in love during the freezing, austere London winter of 1944 ensorcelled both of us. We can't wait to talk about it, so let's read the stacks and get started. Okay, before we jump into this, uh, Kim, you used the word ensorcelled right before the theme song. I don't think I've ever heard that word before. Can I possibly be this old and have never encountered that before? Well, if this makes you feel better, that's the first time I've ever said it aloud. I read that word somewhere on the internet in the last month or so, and I absolutely loved it. I was ensorcelled by the word ensorcelled, and I had to work it in because it's so perfect, right? It, I, yeah, at first I was like, that's not a word, but it is a word. I Googled it. Me too. I know. And I'm like, wow, how do it we not It sounds like exactly what the meaning would be, right? Yeah. yeah. Like sorcery, ensorcelled. Yeah. And don't we need more words like that? Yes. We learn something new every day. Okay. Totally. So McNally Editions had sent us a copy of Winter Love, along with three other books that they launched their imprint with last year. And we read the other three books and ended up doing episodes on each of them, Troy Chimney's They and Daddy's Gone Hunting. And we'll link to those episodes in the show notes if you want to check them out. They were all so good. McNally Editions really bats it out of the park every time, don't they? They really do. And I knew this one was going to be good, too, for that very reason. I think that's um, almost why I put off reading it. I was saving it or something. And it was on my nightstand. Finally, I had this window among all the other books we're reading where I was able to pick it up. And honestly, I do not think I put it down until I finished it. It's slim for one, so it's not a long novel. But I was just completely engrossed by it. It's that good. 
Anyway, when I finished it and then I read the little bio of Han Suyin on the back book flap, I knew immediately we had to do an episode on this one too. Yeah, because how many novels do you read about college-aged women in the 1940s studying science? None that I can think of. And how many novels have we read by women who were once practicing physicians? None that I can think of. Um, I'm sure there are some contemporary novelists who were, but it's pretty unusual, I think. So before we jump into discussing Winter Love, and I agree, Kim, I couldn't put it down either once I started, let's talk about Han Su Yin's life, because no surprise, given what we've already shared, it's pretty interesting. Okay, so Su Yin was born Cho Kuang Hu in Xinyang in the northern central province of Henan. She later said of her name, it sticks in the throat like a fishbone. Her father was from a landowning clan, and he met his Belgian wife, Suyin's mother, while studying abroad. They returned together to semi-feudal China. As a child, while traveling to school in a rickshaw, Suyin would see the bodies of people who had starved to death. Maybe that was why she decided when she was 12 that she wanted to become a doctor when she grew up. But her road to becoming a doctor wasn't completely straightforward, and it took some time. For one thing, it was completely against her mother's wishes. She wanted her to marry a rich American. Right. So she started out as a typist at a medical college in China. And then in 1935, she moved to Brussels, where she began studying medicine. In 1938, she returned to China and married a Chinese nationalist military officer. She then worked as a midwife at a Christian mission hospital. And in 1940, she and her husband adopted a daughter. Her first novel, 1942's Destination Chungking, was based on her experiences during this time. In 1944, she went to London with her daughter and began to study medicine at the Royal Free Hospital there. While she was in London, her husband died in action in the Chinese Civil War. Uh, yeah, and I also just want to note... These are just the highlights of her story. There's so much more, too. We didn't want to, like, overdo it by telling you every little thing because it, it would just go on forever. She's so interesting. Yeah. If it seems like we're giving you a lot of facts, it's because this is actually the condensed version. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Suyin graduated with honors and a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery degree in 1948. And in 1949, she went to Hong Kong to practice medicine at the Queen Mary Hospital. It was there she met and fell in love with Ian Morrison. He was a married Australian war correspondent. Morrison was killed in Korea in 1950. This was the relationship that she fictionalized in her best-selling novel, A Mini Splendored Thing. And their relationship is also documented in her autobiography, My House Has Two Doors. She wrote a lot of memoir and autobiographical material. So there are many, I think, volumes of additional information on her as well. She chose the pen name Han Su Yin, which she translated as a common little voice. In 1952, she married a British officer who was sent to Malaysia, and she joined him there and worked in a hospital before opening a clinic. And then the following year, she adopted another daughter in Singapore. In 1955, she contributed to the establishment of Nanyang University in Singapore. Okay, I love an anecdote from that time. She served as a physician at the university, and she declined a teaching position in the English department because, and I quote, she wanted to make a new Asian literature, not teach Dickens. So she wanted to be the one creating the literature. And in 1955, Love is a Many Splendored Thing was filmed. And interestingly, she distanced herself from the film, saying she never wanted to see it and that she'd actually sold the film rights to pay for an operation for one of her daughters who suffered from tuberculosis. 
Wow. Okay. But according to the McNally Editions biography, the adaptation is what allowed her to become a full-time writer. Most of her writing features a colonized East Asia during the 19th and 20th centuries, but Winter Love is an exception to that. And with that, let's begin our discussion of that book. All right. Winter Love was published in 1962 as one of two novellas in a book called Two Loves. And let's kick this off by giving a quick synopsis of Winter Love. It's the winter of 1944, so that's toward the latter end of World War II. London is still being bombed, there are air raids happening regularly, and people are surviving on food rations. If that's not enough, it's bitterly cold that year. It's a pretty bleak time, but for Red, our narrator, who is looking back on this winter from some decades later as a married woman with a child, it's indelibly etched into her memory as the one time when she was fully alive. She's remembering her early 20s as a student at Horsham Science College, where she falls in love with a married classmate named Mara. Their meet-cute is Red asking Mara to partner with her on a cat dissection. (laughs) It's not typical, but I love it. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like a pitch for the Hallmark Channel right there. Yeah, yeah. We met over a feline spleen. (laughs) Um, Anyway, they begin a passionate love affair that we know from the start is doomed because as we said, Red is married with a child reflecting back on this. So we're not giving anything away there when we say that. Yeah. And in juxtaposition with the factual coldness of the time she's remembering, the memory itself almost feels like this fur coat she can put on and luxuriate in in the privacy of her own mind. Amy, after you read the novel, you texted me right away. Do you want to share your initial impressions? Yeah, I think when I texted you, I was just like, oh my gosh, this book is gorgeous. It's a little jewel of a book, right? Um, There's a very lyrical quality to the writing that makes it kind of sublime, but then there's all this urban grittiness mixed in. Um, The city and the smog, you know, it feels gray throughout the book. And in a way, now that I'm thinking about it, that's kind of um, a good parallel to make between Red, our narrator, and Mara, um, because Red is kind of, how do I want to say it? Um, She can be cold on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Like Red can be abrasive. She comes (laughs) from a poor background. Um, Mara is beautiful and elegant and kind of a pampered princess. You know, she lives a more luxurious lifestyle. So it's something about the juxtaposition of those two elements, the grittiness with the beauty, I guess. And I'd love to read from the novel just to give a little example, maybe of what I'm talking about. So this is a kind of descriptive passage, but remember this is red reflecting back on the time period. The London winter deepened. It was bitterly cold all the time. And dark, the sun never there, round the clock glumness, dim to dark and back again. Yet this was my enthralled time, such as I had never had, such as would not recur. O halcyon winter, solstice of my days, a magic ring of hours, rounding itself within the undiscerning dark. I have stepped out of this charmed circle, gone on living, not wanting anything strongly. Should I be asked now what I wanted of life? I would say, happiness, I suppose. Then add quickly, but I'm quite happy, you know, a good husband, a child. If I were to tell the truth that their existence, my family's being in my proximity, remains vague to me as tombstones of strangers in a common cemetery, that only a certain winter exists for me, 
vivid and clear, surging with life, and that all else is neutral, formless, indifferent, people would think me queer. Only when my mind goes back to that London winter do I feel alive, instead of merely knowing as a fact that I live. In that closed memory do I count my heartbeats by the spirited blood surge. There, once again, I walk with Mara through the evening that is night, holding an electric torch in my hand, the blacked-out glass letting through a faint yellow ring at our feet. And I know what it is to love, to want to die for love. This is still so, and I'm a married woman with a child. We talked a lot, Mara and I, at first not about us, but of books, people, places, ideas, then later of ourselves, more and more. I could talk and talk and talk, and it was like being a child again, comforted, full-fed, and never tired. But I don't remember our words well. In fact, I can scarcely recall one thing she said of all the things which at that time seemed so important and vivid. I remember our walking together best, the pacing, the streets, the cold beneath the invisible balloons of a haunted sky, forgetting the winter and the cold. Now it becomes in my daydreams a walk through sunlit spaces, under windless trees, amid quiet grass. At the time, our surroundings would on occasion break into our consciousness, a screech of buses, the rumble of the underground, the tremor of the stone underfoot, hurrying passers-by, shoulders hunched, pounding with feet eager to run into tea shops, to catch buses, away from the cold. But we were close held in mutual enchantment and lingered on in the cold streets, pacing a lovely spring, unheeding, oblivious except by fits and starts of all that went on round us. Of other winters, I remember chiefly the unpleasantness, how ugly and painful to get up, to shiver, to catch overcrowded buses, the underground smell of feet and breaths and rancid smoke, my hands rough with chilblains, clothes cold and stiff with grime. But about this winter, Mara's winter. I continue to feel its substance, the wrench of its happiness like a pain, an ecstasy which flares up despite what we did to each other, even when I was trying to kill it. Oh my God, it's so perfect. So yeah, that's just a good example of what I was talking about, the kind of urban decay with this like glory of her relationship with Mara. So Yeah, the cold and the warmth existing together so perfectly. And then, so not only is she setting you up for the heartache that we know is coming with that final line, but she is also really painting this descriptive picture of London in winter. You feel the chill. Yeah, it's like you're there. There's this elegant precision and spareness in the language. And you could even say a surgical precision to the way she cuts quickly and deeply into these characters of Red and Mara. Mara's beauty and carefree ways stands in stark contrast to this austere environment that we mentioned before. And so Red lives in a grubby, depressing rooming house, while Mara, on the other hand, has a more upper-class, privileged existence. Uh, she lives with her husband in a nice apartment with luxuries like a private bathroom with hot water. Oh, yeah. She sets it up so well, the differences between their lives in the scene when Red comes over to Mara's apartment and Mara invites her to take a hot bath. It's steamy in more ways than one. <laughs> anyway, then Mara's husband, Frank, comes home and he ruins the whole spell. Oh, he always does every yes. time he enters the scene, right? Yeah, cold water. Um <laughs> yeah. So Mara doesn't have to worry about money because of her marriage to Frank, while Red has to be too careful almost with money. And Red comes across as outwardly confident to the point of bossiness. 
she's kind of aggressive and Mara can be a bit of a pushover. Um, Red sort of taunts her and punishes her for what she sees as weakness and passivity. Yeah, it's these and other differences in their personalities that eventually contribute to the breakup of what is essentially a domestic partnership. Ultimately, though, for Red, it's the judgment of society. That's what Red lives in fear of. It kind of reminded me, Amy, of the female equivalent of Annie Prue's Brokeback Mountain, that story that was adapted into the film. Yeah, that's funny. I hadn't thought of that at all while I was reading the book. And I'm surprised because there are similarities there. Like they can't be open about their relationship, obviously, in the time period. Um, Funny enough, the one movie that was coming to mind for me while I was reading it was that 1960s Georgie Girl. I think just aesthetically, that sort of like city... um, I knew I was in the 1940s, but for some reason, maybe because we're dealing more bluntly with sex in this novel, I felt like it was more modern than that almost. I agree. Um, with Snow and I, too. It's so cold and miserable in London. Yeah. I mean, the two guys and their relationship and sort of they're finding warmth together, but their relationship is kind of doomed, too. And it's also gritty London winter. Listeners, if you don't know Withnail and I, um, it's our favorite movie. One of our favorite movies. Basically. <laughs> we love it. It's yeah. such a good, you have to stop immediately. First, listen to the rest of this podcast and then mm-hmm. stop what you're doing and go find Withnail and I yeah. and watch it. It's I'm really sure our, our listeners from England have seen it many times, but. Speaking of Withnail and I, there's also a point in the book where Red and Mara manage to go away on a little vacation, but they end up in this disastrous situation. <laughs> That sort of, we've gone on holiday by mistake. <laughs> yeah, that's and the I. best line ever. We've yeah. We've gone on holiday by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's getting to be a section of the book where we're starting to see the cracks in Red and Mara's relationship where you're like, oh, are they going to be able to hold this together? The rose colored glasses are kind of off a little bit. Too. Yeah. And they have all these external pressures on them. And then you're also seeing like internally, maybe it's just not meant to be sort of thing. Yeah, though, what I kept wondering after I read it was that if Mara and Red had been able to live openly as a couple, would they have made it or would those personality traits have caused them to break up anyway? Maybe they would have been able to work out these kinks a little bit. Um, In the Kirkus review for Winter Love, it reads, a rumination on a life that could have been. This novel encapsulates queer history often left untold. So I guess thinking of that, the answer is at least they would have been able to try if they had been able to live together openly. Yeah. I mean, the experience of reading it, and I think the fact that they're sneaking around and trying not to get caught, you internalize that as a reader, right? You're feeling the pressure and the tension. And Mm -hmm. it was giving me anxiety as I was reading it, especially because I fell in love with them as a couple, right? You're shipping a couple. Yes. They were cute together. Yeah, I agree. Um, We'll just leave it there right now and let you, the listener, read the book to find out what ultimately happens to their relationship. But let's circle back to Suyin's life for a second. Besides the science college, are there any connections we can make between her life and the story in Winter Love? Well, as I said earlier, she did write several volumes of autobiography, so there may be some more specific connections if you read those. But she definitely knew what it was like to be an outsider or to have her feet in two worlds. 
As a reminder, she's half Chinese and half European. Her granddaughter, the writer Karen Shepard, wrote a piece for the millions. I think I'll read from that because that might help us understand her a little bit more. Certainly, she hadn't had it easy. A younger sibling had died because no doctor, white or Asian, would touch the infant. And my grandmother's own mother, who, to her credit, did touch her, nevertheless referred to her as the yellowish object. With that road to hoe, the yellowish object became a Eurasian force of nature, a woman who was fierce and charismatic, as well as chameleon-like, and a master at control and getting what she wanted. I do what I want, she said in one interview. That's the leitmotif of my life. My father, even to her face, called her Dragon Lady. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I can see some similarities between her and Red. Yeah. Um, And I'll link to Shepard's full essay in our show notes, too, so you can read the whole piece. Yeah, that's making me think more about Red, too, and why she is kind of so tough and abrasive, and it's like a defense mechanism. Exactly. Kind of thing, right? This also has me thinking back to Edith Maud Eaton, known by the pen name Suisin Far, mm-hmm. who was half British and half Chinese. We did a previous episode on her, and we're going to be doing an episode on her sister, Winifred, later this year. Um, but I remember our guest from that Swiss and Far episode, Victoria Namkung. She too is Eurasian, and she was kind of talking about having your feet in both worlds and not necessarily feeling like you fully belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that makes a yeah. lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, after 1956, Han Suyin visited China almost every year. In 1960, she married an Indian colonel and lived in Bangalore, India. They later lived in Hong Kong and Switzerland, where she remained living in Lausanne. She died in Switzerland in 2012 at the age of 95. You know what else I was thinking of that we didn't even discuss yet is just the fact that she was a straight woman and she wrote a gay love story. Yeah, you asked me if we could connect her life. There's nothing that I read in researching her that in any way indicated that she was lesbian. Um, I only read about her many relationships with men, uh, but I wonder if in her autobiographies, if she mentioned anything like that. Yeah. Or what inspired her to choose that for a subject matter. When I was reading it, not knowing her biography at all, I kind of read into this narrator saying, you know, now I'm married and have a child, but mm-hmm. I'm reflecting back, you know, my first instinct is to just go ahead and put the author it's in hard that not situation. To. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you said, we couldn't find any information, any yeah. evidence pointing to that. So no, no, if any listeners know of her and anything about that, let us know. Yeah. But also it just makes me think what a revolutionary thing to be writing about at the time that she did. Yeah. 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 I mean, brave. so different from anything from that period that I know of. So it was written after a many splendored thing, which was hugely successful. Mm-hmm. So then to really change gears knowing that you already have this audience that knows you for this sweeping love story, (laughs) you know, a heterosexual love story and be like, I'm going to try something else out here and see what everybody does with it. Yeah. And most of her other work actually was focused on post-colonial or colonial um, China and environs. Like the fact that she even had a novel set in London during the war was a complete aberration from all of her other work, which is also interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, I, it's such a beautiful book. It's so quick to read. And I think we both have the same experience where I just, I'd be walking through a room and I'd see it sitting there and I'd have to go over and pick it up and continue. I need to find out what happens next. So we were ensorcelled. What can we say? We were ensorcelled <laughs> 100%. We're going to make ensorcelled a thing. That's, I, I pledge. Ensorcelled t shirts. Yes. <laughs> Um, We're going to try to make it happen, listeners. (laughs) 2023, the year of ensorcelled. (laughs) And with that, we urge you to go pick up a copy of Winter Love. McNally Editions has a beautiful copy. And for more information on this episode and past episodes, visit us at lostladiesoflit.com. If you love the show, we would be thrilled if you could give us a five-star review wherever you listen. It really helps new listeners find us, and we can't tell you what it means to us. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Amy Helms and Kim Askew.